listening to Dad Teaches Me About Wine, the podcast that teaches you as much as you pretend to know about wine. I am Madeline Quigley. And I'm Matt Quigley. When I was 21, it was a very good year. It was a very good year for city girls who lived up the stair with all that perfumed hair and it came undone when I was 21 Oh, welcome back, dude. How's it going? Okay. Haven't seen you in. Just kidding. (laughs) Couple seconds. Um. So this is episode six, and as you may have heard from the music that just started, it wasn't our typical music that we start the show with. It wasn't the music I paid you know five dollars for on some royalty site. It was a Frank Sinatra song called. It was a very good year. Which is fitting for today's episode, which is called... It was a very good year. Exactly. And, surprise, surprise, what are we talking about today, Dad? We're talking about the influence that years and the year itself has on the wine. There you go. Uh, Before, though, before we start, we have a listener question. Our first listener question. Um, coming from my best friend and college roommate, Alex Berman. Dad, you've met her once or twice. And Berman is currently, uh, so shout out Berman. Thank you for sending in a question. Berman is currently in Portugal. Okay. And she messaged me this question saying, what is the difference between green wine and white wine? We're here in Lisbon and have seen it. What you saw in Lisbon was the term vino verde, which by direct translation is green wine. Mm -hmm. However, in essence, it's a white wine. Yes. Um, It's called green because it actually does have a little bit of a green cast. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a a very acidic uh, wine, uh, usually made from, uh, I believe, the Rias Bias grapes. And That's a varietal. It's called Rias Bias. Yes. That's literally a type of grape. Yes. I hate this. Okay. <laughs> That's so much right there. <laughs> that could be a river. To me, that'd be like a region with next to a river. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'd look at a label. I wouldn't think that was a varietal. I'd literally be like, oh, it, it's from some region near a river. That's an AVA. But uh, it's uh, it's actually another maritime wine. It's it's grown uh, near the ocean. In Portugal. In Portugal. And then when you go across the border into Spain, um, the name I'm blanking on right Is now. Is it green in Spanish? No, it's not. It's called, uh, begins with an A. Okay, so Vino Verde isn't a producer or a, is it a region? Well, it tends to be a region because it's a grape that's made, it's a grape that's grown basically only there under those conditions to produce the so-called green wine. What could you compare it to? Like a Sauvignon Blanc. It's an acidic, light, fruity wine. So there you go, Berman. Alberino. Alberino. There you go. He he remembered. Uh, Thank you so much for sending in a listener question. That was so great. And um, I love Vino Verde. I've had Vino Verde Rosé. What's up with that? I guess they just pressed it longer on the... Well, no, they'd have to be using a red, red grape I was going to say, is that. that a red yeah, grape? It would have to be a red grape to produce. Because the the Vino Verde the, is made from a, the, the Rias Bias grape. It's called something else in Portugal. It's the same, basically the same grape. It's, it's, a, it's a white wine grape, so... No matter how hard you press it, it's not going to... So they are just some red red. grapes that they grew in the same area that they're calling Vino Verde Rosé. Because now Vino Verde has a sort of like name to it. Falls along varietal lines. Yeah. Okay. Um, Well, there you go. There's the difference. And is there anything else she should be drinking while she's in Portugal? Well, obviously you should try to learn about ports. Yeah. At least do the port She tour. told me that she got our port and tonic tip and she's going to do it. And we're like, lucky you. Absolutely. Day you gotta one, do the white... you got to do the white port and tonic. Absolutely. Um, yeah, port is an acquired taste. It's a very sweet wine. But the, the white port and tonic is a refreshing drink. Yeah, agreed. Especially like when it's hot in Portugal and you're right by the river. Yeah. Um, oh, and if she's in Porto, my travel tip would be rent some bikes and bike up the coast. Um, on the side because you can go along the river to where it meets the ocean and then bike up the coast right there and that is a long ride a long ride and it's dangerous because you ride over the tram tracks and your bike tire kind of gets caught in them and that's like no good i uh, don't want to fall over in front of a tram uh but it's a it's a great ride and it totally is different than anything it looks like northern california it's like rocky beaches and really foggy okay well there you go anybody else want to send in a question you can hit us up dad teaches me about wine at gmail.com or instagram message me that works too so we today what are we drinking dad so today we're drinking uh a wine produced by aguila and it is a cremant de limot and it is a sparkling wine Okay, I already am gonna. I already got some questions. The year on this bottle, fifteen thirty-one. Clearly not the year this wine was made. <laughs> That's the year they started. That is the year. Uh, traditionally, the year assigned to the first production of sparkling wines in Limoux. Yes. When did? Is this? This is French. Correct. This is French. This is from the Languedoc area which is sort of on the bottom left when you're looking at the map of France, not too far from the Pyrenees and the Spanish border. But it's different than Champagne. Well, it's not Champagne, so it's different than Champagne. Okay. And, but they are still, what year was Sparkling Wine started making Champagne? Oh, that is the, 
very interesting historical aspect of this wine. So this, the Limoux wine is a sparkling wine made in the Method des Champenois, which in which the wine basically ferments within the bottle, creating the, uh, the sparkles, creating the, the bubbles. Yep. Uh, but it predated um, Champagne by 100 years. Oh. So the monks, yeah, the wonderful trivia question. Um, the usual answer to the trivia question is who invented um, champagne, the method of champagne. And it wasn't the champagne, it, folks. Uh, well, it's, it was supposed to be the, uh, Dom Per the Dom Perignon, the monk Dom Perignon was supposed to be the one traditionally. But it wasn't. But actually the method was uh, devised 100 years earlier by the monks of Saint-Hilaire, which is the abbey in Le Mans. And so that's why they have 1531 slapped on here yes. as a kind of like, ha, to remind ha. everyone that, the, yes, so, they so were like, first. So champagne would be sometime in the 1600s. Correct. Oh, so, so they're kind of later. throwing a dig. But um, were they honestly independently discovered? Because this isn't the time of the internet, you know, like. Oh, I have no idea whether the abbeys talk to one another and whether. My guess is that, that information diffused up there because it's really not that far. Yeah. And, and you're talking about religious communities that did communicate with one another. And they had like pilgrims and stuff traveling around. Yeah. Saying, yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh, you don't even know what they're doing over there. The wine, it sparkles. And this guy's like, what did you say? Can you write that down for me? The Dom uh, is a cre is credited with coming up with the idea of, the, of making champagne. The downside was that they lost uh, a tremendous percentage uh, of their inventory due to the corks breaking. Or the corks popping out spontaneously. Is that why they do the cage? And it was somebody who invented the cage. And that acclamation goes to Vev Clicquot. Oh. Who actually came up with the idea of putting the cage on the uh, So on the Dom bottom. Perignon. Uh, I know my pronunciation was bad. I don't need any emails about it. Uh, he, they, he was the one who brought sparkling wine to Champagne. And Vev Clicquot was the one who thought, we need to get this stuff on lock. Let's put a cage around it. Then my other question on here mm -hmm. is Brute. Brute is on so many sparkling wines. What the heck does that mean? Dry. Okay. Simple enough. Is that what dry in French is? Yes. So there's Brute, uh, Demi-Sec, and Sec. So you go from being dry to basically sweet. So depending on how much of the sugar is converted to alcohol is a, you know, it's inversely a function of how sweet it's going to be. So if you don't convert the sugar to alcohol, it's sweet. So if a wine is sweet, it's less alcoholic than a dry wine. Unless they've arrested the, you know, unless they've arrested the, uh, the fermentation like they do in Portugal with port. <laughs> oh, so port is a very sweet. alcoholic wine, but it also happens to be do sweet. Do they dump alcohol in there? Is yeah. that what they do? Grand They're alcohol. like, I love it. I love that mindset. Like, oh, this is not strong enough. Well, let's just dump some grain alcohol in here. Correct. Like, that's nuts to me. Well, that's and how that they makes make port. it even sweeter because that alcohol. Because the wine has not undergone full fermentation. Oh my gosh, that is crazy. Okay. Wow. Anyways, so that sounds cool. Um, well, so what I wanted to talk about in terms of it was a very good year was the influences that the year has on 
the, the wine. And I totally inspired this topic because I cut this part out of last episode. But I we were talking about what makes a good year a little bit. And I said, don't you think 2017 is going to be a good year because it was so hot. Like for a place like the Finger Lakes, right? Where they're just scraping by growing these grapes. Kind yes. of. They're like a, a climate like that where they're just kind of getting by. You want to be in an area where you don't need a good year to make it good wine. You just want it to have consistent weather. But for a place like the Finger Lakes 2017, where it was so hot for so long, like we had this summer that stretched into middle of October. Right. That's a boon for an area like that. So you allude to one of the things that makes a good year a good year, which is the weather, um, the weather throughout the year. So you do need a certain amount of heat and sun in order to ripen the grapes. Right. And in many areas of the world, it's a race to get the fruit ripened before the rains start in the fall. Okay. So the two wines that are most, the two wines that I think are most sensitive to yearly variation are Burgundy and Bordeaux. And the reason being, especially in Burgundy, is that it's uh, a real um, race against the clock for them to get their wines properly mature, to get the the sugar levels up uh, before they're picked and before the rain starts. Once the rain starts, if you harvest fruit when it's wet, you will basically dilute the fruit. It's... It's a good way to make bad wine. Okay, so once the rains start, it's... Trouble. So, does that go into weather? Or is that, I thought, when I thought it was weather, I thought it was mostly temperature, but it's also like rain, more rain. So, what you want, what you would want is some gentle rain in the beginning of the year to get the vines going. You want a couple of pretty strong rains during the year to sustain them. And then you want a very dry fall so that the, the grapes stay dry and they, don't, and they don't rot. And then you can get them off the vines uh, at their peak of ripeness. Okay. So what else, though, plays into a year? Can't It's not just rain and weather. Well, as you, as you said, there are climates that are right on the edge in terms of being able to uh, ripen their fruit. Like, uh, as you said, the Finger Lakes. The other place traditionally that has problems ripening their fruit is uh, Oregon, the uh, Willamette Valley. Sometimes they have a, you know, they're more likely than not to have a bad year if it's cool and then the rains arrive. Now, places, many places in California almost are impervious (laughs) <laughs> to yeah. any variation in Same the weather. Same with Italy and Spain and stuff like that, I'm sure. Is there a lot of... But France, you were saying that some of these big names also, Bordeaux and what was the other one? Burgundy. Burgundy have issues with the, right. the weather. Yes. So when you think, oh, that was a good year, it was a dry and hot year is what you're kind of saying. Or the... Well, it depends on the, the type of wine that you're trying to, trying to grow. Wouldn't all wine benefit from that? Well, you don't... The vine is a, a very uh, interesting 
uh, plant. If because... you're telling me you can literally take snipping or clippings of it and just affix it Frankenstein style to roots and they start to grow. Like that is ridiculous. Well, the roots are the most important part and the roots can go down upwards of 50 feet. <laughs> and what you want are vines that have those type of uh, root structure so that they can, even when it's dry, they can still find water. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have relatively young vines that haven't achieved a root structure, they're more likely to be damaged in the um, summer months. Yeah, you know, dry, dry weather. So you were explaining. I was saying, wouldn't every type of wine benefit from a hot, dry year? Uh, not, and you were not saying the cool not. Weather grapes. You were saying not cool weather grapes or young vines. Okay, that's that's fair. Mm-hmm. So the cool weather grapes don't necessarily want really hot environments. So that's why um, the pinots and the chardonnays tend to be grown in in cooler environments because they don't do all that well when it gets hot. Um, the flavors become what we term vegetal. They're green flavors when the when the grapes are subjected to too much hot weather. It's not a pleasant uh, mm-hmm. product. So Syrah is a red. Absolutely. Yeah, of course, absolutely. Um, so what other factors then go into making it a very good year? Rain, temp. Yeah, weather. Yeah, basically weather and and temperature in terms of a particular year but the other part of uh, the cycle that I wanted to talk about is how long wine is aged um, yeah, in terms right. of years so a lot of people are hung up on um, you know has this wine aged long enough and the reality is that there are only a couple of uh, wines nowadays that need to be aged for any length of time yeah so those wines are are going to be uh bordeaux in the big years and what do you mean by a length of time two years is a length of time five years is a length of time ten years is a length of time yeah for a good bordeaux wine um ten is usually the minimum no way yes would you know it was gonna be a good year because you're like all right, bottling this baby up. Ten years, can't wait. It was so hot and dry this year. Yep. They they have like a gold star on those bottles. I can't wait. Well, each year uh, is analyzed by the critics in terms of what kind of a year it was. And the producers will actually change the way the wine is made in a good year. So if they know that they're, that it's going to be a good year with good fruit, they actually will make the wine in a way that they extract more tannins so that it takes longer to mature, uh, but it's a much more structured, finessed wine. So you are saying that Bordeaux are really kind of the only wine these days that really needs a good chunk of time. One of the, one of the few. Uh, there are other wines which are made in more traditional ways that require more time. Some some Italian wines like Barolo, some Barolos. So you're 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 thinking here like 10 years is what you mean by extensive aging. Yes. 
should you be thrown off by a wine that's too old? Depends on what kind of wine it is. Yeah, but... So different kinds of wines have different longevity. So a wine... A Chardonnay. Yeah, a wine is not good forever. Mm -hmm. A wine which is kept properly will, will last a reasonable amount of time depending on what it is. So, for instance, um, the wine that your mother and I had last night at, yeah. at dinner was 27 years old. But that was a Montrachet. And a Montrachet is arguably the best Chardonnay in the world. And it can, it can age for upwards of 30 or 40 years. Mm-hmm. Now, I thought it was probably time to serve that wine because it was getting a little little on the edge in terms of how long you can expect the wine uh, to be good. On the other hand, if this were a California Chardonnay, forget about it. Uh, there would almost be no taste left after 27 years. Were there, was there a good taste left to this wine? Oh, it was extraordinary. That's great. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it develops all sorts of nuanced flavors uh, that, um, that you don't get in a younger wine. A color of the wine. It was no longer the sort of um, lemon yellow oh, really? of, a, of a Chardonnay. Yeah, it was almost orange. Oh, that's cool. Did I pour that really poorly? It's fine. Um, Most of it went in the glass. You did a good job. Yes. I don't Just, know how to use that that's thing. Fine. Okay. That's so cool that it becomes this really awesome experience. Right. You know, the wine critics will tell you they rated a 91, drink now through 20 you know, 21 or something. Uh, Frankly, most of the time, they have no idea what they're talking about. Wine develops and ages in ways that are very hard to predict. Yeah. There's been a a big change in the way wines wines are made over the last couple of decades. So uh, back in the mid-80s, there was an obscure lawyer um, in Moncton, Maryland, who didn't like being a lawyer and decided to start writing about wine. And he predicted that the 1982 uh, Bordeaux vintage was going to be a great one, even though it was panned uh, by all the the critics. Why did he think that? He just thought that. So that guy was Robert Parker. So Robert Parker went on to become the world's most influential um, wine critic. Um, now Robert Parker obviously has his own taste and the way he likes things. So in a sense, a lot of the world's wines have come to be made in a way that Parker will like them. And that, and and that is called the international style of wine. And that is they're very fruit forward, somewhat alcoholic, but the cost of that is that the wines don't last very long. That if you make a wine that way, where you can drink it right away, then it typically doesn't have aging potential. So that's the trade-off. But so I shouldn't be like, because for me, when I look at a wine list and it's 2017 right now, I see 2016. I just assume like, oh, that's like, you know, you kind of, you want an old wine, you know, like everyone says it ages, you know, like fine wine or whatever. But that isn't necessarily true. Like, No, it's a function of the wine. Most wines now are created to be consumed immediately yeah uh it is a consumer driven 
So industry. So even if I see a bottle on the shelf that says 2014, that wine was still probably processed or in bottled in 2015. I just the bottles have been distributed for the past two years or something. Uh, most likely that is the answer. Although some wines are actually by law kept um, for a period of time before they're released. And by law, that's like in foreign countries. Like, does is there like Correct. a in Burgundy, you have to age it for two years or something. No, not in Burgundy. In Burgundy, there are no age requirements, but in certain um, uh, certain Italian wines, uh, specifically like Brunello, uh, if you call it a Reserva, I believe it has to stay 18 months in oak or something. Okay. So it, it, it pushes the release year back. Okay. All right, that's interesting. Yeah, so mom always said that you guys thought about buying a case of wine that you could drink at my wedding when I was born. But there's only like one wine. You gotta think you guys are like 25. Yeah, I'm gonna let you know. It's not gonna be 25. But um, uh, when you you were saying there were only certain wines that were would be good for 25 years and it wasn't a good year for that type of wine. Can you explain that situation? Sure. So, uh, yeah, that's the um, romantic notion that you're going to buy wine when your child is born to be served at their wedding or some, you know, whatever. And again, it boils down to being able to predict what a wine is going to be like 25 years later. And one of the most reliable wines in terms of not changing over long periods of time, even a century, is actually port. So... um, (laughs) So vintage port um, is traditionally what is bought for, you know, a child to be served at the wedding. Um, But vintage port, uh, but they don't declare vintage years every year. So unfortunately, darling, your birth year was not a vintage port year. What do you mean like they didn't declare a year? So the the industry in general uh, declares a vintage year uh, based on a... Uh, the fact that it was a very good year. Oh. So they, they make just didn't do that. they make port with that number on it in terms of the the year. Um, however, most port, if you look at it, has no okay. date on it. Has no year. So yeah, my year wasn't a year. Um, but aren't there other wines like the wine you had last night? Um, well, potentially, but um, I don't. I don't recall ninety three being a particularly stellar year in any in any place plus um at the time i couldn't have afforded a, a couple of cases of batard montrachet to put down for your wedding all right <laughs> so that is an interesting idea going with the with the uh year so, itself so uh, many wines do improve with time though even though they're made in a way to be consumed right away yeah but they do have a certain longevity. So most of the California cabs are going to be fine for 10 or even 20 years. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, the, um, the, the Interestingly, I've had some old Zins. And for some reason, Zins don't appear to hold up terribly well. At least the, the old Zins that I've had. I've had 20-year-old Zins and they, they're, they're almost gone. Um but what's interesting is that the aging process occurs almost uh, independently in each bottle. Um, years ago, there was a I had a favorite wine um, that was still 
being released and it was a 91 Hermitage uh, and um, it was just an exquisite wine and I uh, put a whole bunch in my cellar and over time slowly consumed them and um, a number of years ago uh, I had a bottle and at that time was maybe maybe 15 years old and for an Hermitage that's should be young mm-hmm. this wine was clearly over over the top over the peak so it's just all the fruit the had kind of fallen out and i was afraid that my remaining bottles were similarly inclined but remarkably they weren't they were okay it was just this one bottle decided to jump off the cliff i see <laughs> okay i like that um so where what is a resource you would go to to hear about wine years well the uh the wine spectator which is a uh, commercial publication um lists years uh like a year in in review like who's going to do the 2017 year in review and it will give you a breakdown of all the different regions and give you a score for those wines based on the year. Is that an issue of Wine Spectator that comes out every year? It's available online. They, their their vintage chart is available. Do you online. still subscribe to Wine Spectator? No. Why? I don't find it all that interesting anymore. Yeah. Uh, I've reached a point where it doesn't. It's more a trade publication pushing. You know, pushing commercial things. Well, it's a as, business. Well, I I understand that, and for a time, I had so little knowledge base that I needed to acquire, um, you know, acquire things. But now I, I know enough that it, it doesn't. Do you still doesn't really help me? Do you suggest it to a beginner? For a beginner, it's great, but I would say the most important thing when you begin to taste wine is to trust your own palate. Yeah. That no matter what the ratings say. Your palate trumps whatever the number is. The other thing is that there is no way in the world that a hundred point um, scale is meaningful, because there's no way to say that this wine is a ninety four and this wine is a ninety three. It's it's a joke. So these these scales are all kind of uh, kind of humorous and and if they ever subjected to any kind of re- repeated testing like a statistical test. It would fail miserably. So, but do you still read the year in review that Wine Spectator does about how the year is going to be region by region? No. Really? No, because um, I find that the producer, that's why it it becomes so important to follow a producer. Follow producers. It, It turns out that most of the time the producer is more important than the year itself. Okay. That, um, even though, you know, spectator may call this an 87 year and this is a 92 year, you know, again, the difference of five points on a year, who knows what that means. Yeah. And certainly the difference between a good producer and a bad producer far exceeds yeah. any small difference in the year. The only, uh, the only caveat is when they have disastrous years. So um, some, uh, you know, some years are so bad in terms of the weather that some houses don't even make wine. They don't even. They don't Gotta even. Gotta be a, a year big loss. Oh, tremendous loss! But mm. they won't. They won't put their name on something. Yeah. Do you think they sell those grapes though? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. To like Yellowtail or something like that. Well, I don't know. Two Buck Chuck. Two Buck Chuck is that. Two Buck Chuck is disaster mm. wine in a bottle. Um, not necessarily disaster, but um, no. The reality is the Two Buck Chuck is a um, is a venue for grapes that um, somebody doesn't want their name on. Well, there you go. And oftentimes, top producers don't want to flood the market with their wines. So they limit the bottling in terms of how much wine they make. And then they just ship off their wonderful grapes to somebody else. And then the else. rest of the wonderful grapes get sent to, to Chuck. That's why there's so much tremendous variation in the two-buck Chuck. Interesting, And yeah. you can't go necessarily go back and get the same stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, well, I think this was a good introduction to... A very good year. What makes a very good year or, or years associated with wine? Um, anything else on your end? Uh, I just wanted to say that uh, some wines typically are not vintage. Don't have a year. Yeah. So like champagne, um, most champagnes are non-vintage, which Why? means they're actually mixed uh, years. I think we kind of went over this which in is, one of our practice episodes. Which is done for consistency of product. Mm-hmm. So you're... Moet Champagne is the same today as it is, you know, five years from now. Um, but even in Champagne, just like in Port, they will declare vintage years. And yeah. then there will be a, a, a number on the label, a vintage. And those wines tend to be obviously more expensive. A gazillion dollars. Not necessarily, but they... And like a wine like Cristal or Dom Perignon, those are all vintage years. They don't make Dom in a bad year. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I think that'll do it. Okay, this was fun. This was fun. Cool. Well, like I said, guys, thanks so much for listening. And it would truly mean so much if you could go on iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. You know, take the minute to leave the review. It will help us out so much. And if you take a screenshot and send it to me, email, Instagram message, whatever, um, we will give you a shout out on the podcast for sure. So thank you so much. Um, You can follow us. The best place for updates on the show is our Instagram page at dad teaches me about wine. And if you need to send in a suggestion or a question like Alex Berman or um, a correction for my dad, um, you can email us dad teaches me about wine at gmail.com. All right. I think there's a Steelers game coming on. Absolutely. Yes. Cheers. Go Steelers, I guess. But now the days are short I'm in the autumn of the year And now I think of my life As vintage wine from fine older kegs From the brim to the dregs It poured sweet and clear It was a very good year